Welcome to Woods in the Sound, a monthly audio series held by Foresta Collective, where we converse, listen to, and exchange with humans and modern humans in dedication to the emergence of an imaginary for a more ecological and connected being in the world. Monthly themes are sprouting from Foresta Lexicon and are explored deeper in our Ecologies of Attention dojo, an online community of practice for this time in between paradigms. As things become more fluid and less fixed, we believe it's important to hold spaces for slow discernment, reconnection to a more embodied presence, and poetic outlook. As you are listening to conversations, practice, and soundscapes in this podcast, we encourage you to pay attention to resonances also as a physical experience and reverberations of breath. In October, we contemplate wild geese forming skeins to leave the northern lands and meditate on the subject of farewells. Potentially, life and death are more than friends. They are mutual processes of being, where the spiritual and the material are not separated. There is also no antagonistic separation between forces of beginnings and endings. To contribute to this month's podcast, we invited an interdisciplinary artist, educator and gardener, Shelley Atkin, for a conversation around processes of decay and decomposition in the natural world. Steve Portugal, a comparative ecophysiologist whose research deepens into sensory ecology and behavior of birds, to introduce a Western scientific view into the intricacies of birds' practice of migration. And sandhill cranes, wild geese, ducks, woodpeckers, frogs and other creatures whose voices can be heard on an early morning on Mandora Lake. The soundscape has been recorded by Tim Khan from Portland. Like if we look around, especially now, you know, this time of the year when plants, some plants are dying, some plants are just letting go, really deep, deep release of mm. everything that have been growing and may, been in the making over the past seasons is now just you know, being released and you know, let go of being woven goodbye to and uh, and I guess um, we fight this I feel this having certain values and then trying to live and like relate to the world through them it's uh, it's it's maybe a bit more what nature does because it's not like the leaf doesn't matter. The leaf just serves a different purpose when it hits the ground, you know? The leaf just becomes ground, basically, and the tree knows perhaps that now it's a leaf, now it's soil, now it's a leaf, now it's soil, you know? It's just like different phases. And maybe because we've built up so much, like, also, yeah, capitalist 
logic around like accumulating things and having more and then like that this letting go seems so drastic because it's contrasted with like the tower of more and more and more so then it's like a minus but maybe in this other logic it's not even it's not even um fantastic i mean it's an amazing exhale but then like the inhale comes in the spring so it's it's not even like losing the leaves it's just like letting the leaves make become something else or that the form changes but for us it's so impressive <laughs> and it is I mean it's cool to be impressed by it but do you know what I mean that mm. it's just because of that contrast that we are still thinking in in upwards in like building in progress in moving forward and yeah like our thinking is very linear in a way it's just like an arrow this yeah. line that we follow but actually maybe what we can learn from plants is this cyclicity mm. and how things don't disappear and if you let go of something it doesn't mean now you're robbed of yeah something yeah. but that is, it, it, it changes it becomes something else and and it will nourish you in some other ways that mm. maybe we don't know in what ways. Like it, it seems sometimes to me that we first want to know mm -hmm. and then we say, yes, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think about it. Mm. All right. <laughs> yeah. As if some of these things we even could stop, you know, to say like, yeah, I, I wonder if that, I guess it's like consent or something like that, like agreeing. If I let go of this. Yeah, I agree to it, but then it's also like by the laws of nature, like it happens, you know? <laughs> it's like the rotting log doesn't say like, well, I don't know, I don't know what kind of a soil will I become? And no, you know, like not to say that it doesn't have like the ability to negotiate it and go at different tempos and collaborate with all of these other beings that are decaying it. But it's also like, yeah, so much to learn from this, like being supposedly solid, supposedly from our view <laughs> and then like softening. Right. That there is like, as if there is a chosen farewell and unchosen farewell mm. and that you know when someone dies and you don't choose or when you die and you don't choose mm. when and, and, and of mm. course it, this is very it's very hard to to accept it and to go with it but um, and maybe that's why we also turn it death into such a horror mm. in this society mm. But then there are also chosen farewells when you say, okay, actually, I feel it's time to let go. Like, I don't want this thing anymore mm -hmm. and I want to let go. Mm -hmm. And this is, can be also tricky because it became such a habit. Even I don't want it, but it's such a habit. I know it so well and I keep it, you know, just like hold on to the chair, yeah. even though it's uncomfortable. <laughs> like yeah, yeah. I have it a lot with sleep actually like that I hold on to the day I'm like I 
hold on to being awake for so long until it's like, until I can't resist it anymore. It's not very healthy, but uh, like I have it a lot with this, like, even though I love being asleep and dreaming this threshold, it's like crossing all those threshold moments is such an art itself or such a craft, like to really like navigate the waters through intentionally between wake and sleep, you know, or just allowing it even, not like doing, but just allowing this thing. I find sometimes I resist it because the day is, it, yeah, because I love the day and I love the night, but threshold is sometimes very difficult. <laughs> Would you say a threshold is now, for example, this time between summer and winter, autumn as a threshold, as a kind of transition? Mm, I guess so. I mean, we have, but now when we're talking, I kind of wonder why. Why do we make autumn and spring the transitions and summer and winter the, the, as if they're so clear, you know? Or the day and the night. Yeah. Yeah, this in-between is actually constant. Autumn, there's something in the etymology of the word autumn that comes from the word harvest. And the root is like gathering. So it's also actually receiving so much, not only letting go, like receiving all of this completions in some way or like fruits and, you know, if the fruit part is like the offering, like receiving all of these gifts and offerings and then a simultaneous letting go. So it's kind of a mutual, it's like both at the same time. You know, if we put life in the center, then it means also accepting the rhythms, accepting the comings and the goings and the and that, is, that, that they don't need to be separated or antagonistic. I feel like what mm. we do in this society, we make them antagonistic. Here is beginning, this is end, here is life, here is death. But actually, if this is a mutual process, if this is a, a one being actually mm. that has this different sides and this different cycles, again, the cyclicity, mm then maybe, you know, it's like, yeah, it's harvesting and then letting go and then growing. And like, you know, it's, it's the kind of exiting this antagonism, I guess. Mm, totally, yeah. It's like antagonism, but still where one is dominant, you know, like the model of progress being in mainstream society being dominant or life being dominant. It's so interesting. I had a talk with one friend who works with dreams, like uh, opening dreams. She's a very specific practice, comes from specific like lineage and traditions around how to work with the information from dreams. And for her, it's like, it's, it was really important. She said, you know, even if you have a nightmare, it's, it's great. It's great information, which I totally agree with. Like, it's in a sense also what I would think like in terms of disease that it's the same antagonism that we make like health as if it's one state and disease as if it's a, as if it's a, a threat actually to health. And 
in her practice, it's all about that the messages from the dream are all about affirming life. But still, it's not about creating this false binary over and over, you know, where I think, yeah, our, for example, our organism also orients towards life, all things, all life wants to live, whether it's plant life or human life, but soil lives by decay like soil is decay <laughs> constantly like soil is the composition of decomposition and matter falling apart constantly and all of these layers and layers and so it knows its life through that but we know yeah death as a contrast or disease as a contrast and actually it's just a choice it's just a and not a choice it's a it's like a negotiation of the organism that like having a, at least in also what I, what I, in the like healing approaches that I learn from, it's a totally legitimate choice for the organism to say no more, you know, it's a survival choice. And we offer medicine to help the life force, but we don't control the life force. The life force is autonomous. It goes wherever it wants to go. Yeah. Anyways, do you know what I mean? That the mm -hmm. that it's either or, but still one is more valuable, you know? And, and you life is valuable, but also Yeah, I think it's really nice when you say what is soil, right? Like it's a constant process of decomposition and composting, but also regenerating. And there it's not separated. Right? Mm -hmm. Like the seed comes into soil and there it is, life is being born. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, around it is decomposition, which is also regeneration. Mm -hmm. so there's like one process. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the regeneration comes from, I don't know. I mean, any way we say it, we say it in a sentence and the sentence has words that only follow each other. So we can't say at the same time, decomposition, regeneration, <laughs> like, but we, we try and mean that they're the same action. And maybe it's more a shift in our attention. So we, if we give more attention to this, undoing to this dissolving this decomposition we can see it's like we give our attention to it and we can see that process happening we give our attention to the regeneration it's like giving the attention towards another in a way outcome but not in this you put in a and you get out b kind of outcome and generally we don't give our attention to the decomposition. Yeah, it makes me think of the, I guess many cosmologists of the world have this dual, dual understanding of nature of reality. And it makes me now think of these gods who have two faces, like mm. the Janus or, you know, one of those who's mm. like this and that yeah. together. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. But it also makes me think in that way of all these traditions that are really also about 
always feeding the underworld, like feeding the spirits, feeding the unseen, giving acknowledgement to them as a balance for living, you know? Yeah. Rather than being cut off in that way. Like seeing that you are this living form and they are the spirit form, but you're just two different forms and two different realities or two different realms. Where one needs the other actually yeah. for the cycle to yeah. be healthy, to be to be going, to be flowing. Yeah. Yeah. I think I for sure I learned so so much working with the plants and also even working with um in certain gardens where we where there was also a desire to receive food or medicine or nourishment from the garden in very specific ways i think it happens by relationship but also you know to harvest to eat to to take care of ourselves through the garden and feeling that that's like i think when i also artistically started wondering more about decomposition because we're I, I mean let's say in dance you're trained always around composition composition is a big thing in, in music composition means could mean I, in music or in dance or in any form I mean also in any art form it's like intentionally arranging elements so that a thing comes to be I guess I was really curious about mm, I mean, anyways, I'm always curious about how these processes, which are already happening, it's not that we have to do anything for decomposition to happen in the world, you know? Also composition, in a sense, is happening, like elements are constantly being arranged and rearranged. But in a way, like, yeah, also being there, being in the garden, being with the land much more and just witnessing this constant force of decomposition and how powerful it is so then i i got really curious like how deep can that go or how consequent can i be to actually just follow along and support with my attention and my perception to that that process rather than being this maker because you're always like taught and affirmed that as a maker as a human maker you make decisions, you make choices, you make compositional choices. Those are motivated by aesthetic or values or whatever materials are at hand, but you are the one, like you're this master. It's a bit the God complex, no? Like you arrange things and that's why you can take credit for it because you supposedly did it. Mm. But I'm much more interested anyways in supporting, follow along, being more of a facilitator or facilitators even sounds so active now, but like, yeah, I was thinking also a lot about this midwife, like midwifery or doula, someone who's supporting it. Cause it's not like the midwife makes the baby come out. Like this force of this being comes when it comes and it's a collaboration then between the one giving birth and the one being birthed, you know? <laughs> I guess I don't I have no big present for birth, so I actually can't say, but uh, like this midwife comes from medio, from being in the middle. So I think 
not being standing in the middle in between something, but like being on, alongside a process which is happening and then protecting or supporting or, you know, that there is room to kind of also participate and in a way influence, but never control. And I think artistically, I relate to that because whatever you make, it's its own, it has its own field of consciousness. And even if you make choices, they are ultimately not about control. They're about everything making a choice. And then, yeah, what if, what if the work is about undoing and un, unbecoming and un, and decomposing and unmaking, you know? And then it can also be structurally speaking, like, um, like because we talk so much about wanting to unlearn things. And maybe it's it's then easy to say to put learning and unlearning on again this active, passive, false binary. But um yeah, decomposing. Suppose you can have it in the sense of really actively tearing something down, breaking something apart. But I saw it, for example, in the garden so often because that is what happens when I harvest, actually. You know, like the cycle of seed to plant to flower to fruit to soil to seed all of that like the act of taking the fruit is receiving is harvesting but is also supporting the whole entity to de decompose you know if we wouldn't then the fruit would stay and it would rot as well you know yeah i think it's very interesting also how you speak of i'm still thinking a little bit um this composition and decomposition and how all the arts in general are kind of there for human to create, you know, even this word create, it's like <laughs> my creation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the way you approach it is like, I'm thinking of it as unlearning human mastery and learning mm. this whole like we are on top of things you know we create here we compose here we do this here mm. we do that it's all about us and as subjects and the objects of the world around that we're acting and mm. creating and composing with right mm -hmm. or without with right like this just composing but Mm -hmm. and, and in a way, yeah, no, maybe not to lose this part, because but to, to add with mm -hmm. to the composing, composing with. Yeah. But indeed, what you are doing, or it's uh, what, what I hear from you is that kind of going in the other on the to the other side and saying, well, how about decomposing? Right. Yeah. Because also composing presumes that there's some kind of template upon which things are composed, which was basically the whole culture we have of blanks, empty, so-called empty spaces, white canvas, white walls, 
empty dance studio, but nothing is empty. Nowhere is empty. Everything is already something. And so you're already working with what is, even if you're under the pretense that you aren't, you definitely more, even more so are. It's all this invisible that we spoke of earlier. So then, yeah, if you take away this basic presumption, then it's already working with the that which are that which exists, like that which is there, that which could be, but what could be, you know. So decomposition is like an acknowledgement that the acknowledgement is that something has already been composed, or something is. I don't know if you could even say it's been composed, but it's it just is. Many things are, and then you work from there, basically. Mm -hmm. Right, and, yeah, exactly. And the culture that ignores the invisible world, that only says tables and chairs, you know, this is what, what life is, we are here, huh? Hmm. So that completely ignores the invisible world, which is also maybe connected to how we treat death as an end, because the physical body is not there anymore. So that's it, you know, exactly. game over. Like it's a uh, as if there is nothing in the invisible world and mm. also how we lose the connection to ancestors and mm. to how we kind of break this cycle, this cyclicity of uh, mm. these rhythms that support life and that where both visible and invisible are part of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that maybe you're also more than this person with this name and this certain biography and all of that, that you're something beyond like this form that you have come in, but you've still come in this form. Like the log is still there. It's specific. It is specific, you know, like, and the pine log will decompose in a different way than the birch log because of how it hosts air and other beings and the density of its wood and the quality of its and so it's it's also beautiful to see all of this like range and to say yeah because it's easy I think it's easy for them to conclude like to wish to conclude that death is not meaningful or that that they're like it's definitely meaningful like also decay is super meaningful and it happens it means a lot it means a lot for the forest you know um, and it certainly means a lot to lose a specific form of a being who's come in this certain constellation of forces who's been doing this or that in the world who is of a certain people it means a lot to lose that in a sense but the loss is not about disappearance, ideally. Like to care for it, to care about it, to, to be affected by it is also to say it, it, this being becoming invisible or losing its form in this being's life. Yeah, it does impact it does send a ripple out because it was a specific 
form. It was a specific being who held a specific place and whole constellation of relationships. So it changes things. But, you know, learning to include this change rather than exclude it, basically. Rather than say, now they are gone. Because they are who I think they are, or like they are who I perceive in this one way. That the process of um, trees falling and decay and like the forest floor a healthy floor, forest floor also involves different stages of decay in a sense, you know, that removing all the fallen trees, for example, from the forest actually, um, to a certain degree, like there's, there was a negotiation to be had if, for example, people want to walk along a certain path. If it's a forest, I don't know, then you should really speak to an actual forester, because I am only fascinated by it from the sidelines, but that in the sense of the forest as a whole includes the not only what is living, but what is what is in different process, different stages of decay. And so for the mushroom life, for the uh, animal life, for everything, there, there's these layers. It's actually where we learned how to make compost. I mean, we just imitate the forest in a sense. You know, mm. imitate is maybe not the right word, but mimic. Yeah, <laughs> it is a thing, by mimicry, but yeah, we just but yeah, adapt. Observing, yeah, observing processes that happen and then kind of say, oh, okay, maybe it can work in my garden. Or like yeah, yeah, seeing the elements that are themselves working and then trying to intentionally recreate it. Um, another space where that can happen, where you can participate in that process, but it's basically happening in the forest all the time. And actually, there it's also part of it is also invisible because we don't really see. I mean, all everything under the soil, under the skin of the earth, mm. we don't really see what is happening. Yeah, unless we specifically you know, go and study that which humans. Of course, are doing. But I find also a metaphorical level that there is a forest that is above, and that where things are growing and falling, and you know, different processes are happening. But there is also a below the surface forest, which is mm. another multi-species world mm. under the earth that we don't see. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and this same division is it's like that we only consider you existing in this form, but when you cease to be visible, it's as if you don't exist. This is totally the same mindset from which we only perceive the forest as what we can be among in a very, in the most obvious sense. But yeah, the, un the underland, the underworld, it's also that. It's also this. Yeah, and it's actually great how world many different cultures include in their mythologies this underworld, right? There is also 
uh, another god of the underworld, mm. or also another characters, another mythical beings that inhabit the underworld. Like there's yeah. almost in every culture, just from what I know, there is such a place, right? That there is also. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and if you think about what we spoke earlier, like this balance of exchange among the spirits and the living, for example, it's also just what the forest does, the exchange between the roots and the branches or between the mycelium and the um, mushrooms that appear as the fruits above the ground. You know, it's practicing that balance and that exchange all the time. Yeah, who are we to say? Yeah, it, it actually seems so obviously imbalanced when you look at that. But yeah, that's the point, I guess, that people aren't looking. They cannot look at it, so they don't see the direct value of it or the implications. You know? Yeah, right. And, I, and I'm, I'm just thinking that how did we get so injured by this way of thinking, by modernity, by this kind of um, this disenchantment of the world that we just pay attention to just this, you know, this is what we see, it's here, you know, we, we trained our way of thinking mm. so much to trust only one way of knowing, I guess. Mm. I wonder if learning from plants or learning from living systems, we can unlearn that or, mm. or open other doors or open other spaces or travel to other places in ourselves as well. Absolutely. I think it can even happen in this. There's even a, such a banal way where if, if for example, <laughs> I mean, now it's very, I have to laugh at this as the, my thought of what's the most accessible way to get people to realize that. But for example, just realizing that the taste of a certain uh, plant that they like to eat is the taste of the soil. I mean, it truly is. Like now I, I realize it more and more and more with the years of also planting and gardening, like you can have the exact same plant and it will have nearly no flavor in unhealthy soil, in tired soil or in imbalanced soil, soil that doesn't have all the different types of nutrients that it needs to have a rich, mm, healthy life. And the exact same plant in a totally different soil will taste totally different. And if, if that connection could be made, then maybe they could see that it's just the plant is I don't know, it depends how you formulate it. The plant is the soil in plant form. Plant is also sunlight in plant form, you know, that it's just this manifestation of all of these other forces. And the healthy soil needs compost, right? It needs yeah. decay to, to make it healthy, actually. Yeah, yeah. And maybe it goes back then to the seasons, like you were saying that you know when it's winter. It's like, maybe you know because there's these indications like the temperature or the snow or whatever it is, but you also just know because it's 
undeniable because your system is responding to the conditions which are there. And it's like the plant responding to the soil. It's just undeniable. It can't pretend to be anything else. It can't pretend to be juicier than it is because it's just a manifestation of the conditions. Or you could even say it's a relationship. Like this relationship, if I stay in this relationship with this soil as a seed, this is who I will become. Mm. And if I am, like what it means, yeah, this whole question, what it means to be in a nourishing relationship, since everything is a relationship, right? So for a seed, it's a question also, what is a nourishing relationship where I can actually flourish, where I can totally and it makes it it's funny that you say nourishing because isn't that this old school debate nature versus nurture to put them on a binary but actually like nature is nurture (laughs) and to say yeah i mean when we spoke culturally like we are infused and we are dealing with all these different norms and systems and um conditions Uh, but it's not that we're um, purely that we're in communication with that we are creating that too so this certain type of plant which is a result of the soil will also create the same soil but it's not locked in a certain it's not locked in that way you know to say that everything is relationship is also say it's alive and it's it can be that relationship can be engaged in in so many different ways. And I mean, that's one of the most humbling powers to reckon with, that I can actually, in the context of a garden, for example, I can actually change the soil. It's like changing the entire fundament of existence. I think I tried to tell that to the kids, like, whoa, that's such a responsibility. I guess... It's the feeling of it comes after really seeing it, really like seeing the soil change, feeling it change, seeing the implications of that. But wow, it's empowering, but it's also humbling. Totally. For many people, this security, the stability, something that's long lasting, will last forever. It's such a comforting Mm. thought yeah and if we don't think of it as binary like mm. right like also this or or it would be nice not to think of it as a binary as well not not to put it in a position mm. but do you feel that you know thinking of everything then is temporal and always this kind of temporary cycles of life and death do you feel insecure there or do mm. you find another place to feel the security or the stability mm. yeah wow it's such a good question because i also have to respect that you know roots take root like in the plant world for example not to mention beyond but in the form of the plant world roots do need some kind of a 
good grip. They need some kind of a clear contact. You know, this agreement between the roots and the soil or between the other beings and water and air that exist in the soil. Like these conditions are really important for the plant to even come into existence. So it's not to say that it's not needed some kind of, but I don't know, because stability on the human mindset, it sounds so like how we flatten the ground. We do that. We just made that up. <laughs> I spoke with Jared recently because of his, uh, his whole process with the land, that there is literally no flat ground. It's a made up human concept. It's like there's no actual straight line. We just created architecture that deceives us of it constantly. So there is this specific human form that stability is supposed to look like marriage. I don't know. All these structures, which are fine. There's nothing wrong with um, choosing them or living them out in, in their own ways, but it's not inherently stable. You know, like these weird angles that rocks can find, or I remember one, um, one pine fell in my garden and it hit, it hit like just this one tiny little um, split between uh, another pine and its branch. And it kind of hit just right exactly in this random place where it was totally stable. It was totally, it wasn't pulling down this tree. And it like, they had somehow found this really amazing uh, sharing of weight where it was totally stable. And I was like, we should just leave it like that. We couldn't, but um, it was like these unexpected forms that, that, that it takes or like, I, yeah, I would hope that I can find enough stability in my own internal system, not to have to grip too hard because I think this is then, this gripping is what we talked about earlier. The gripping leads to power over the other, the gripping is also a form of colonization, like this act of suffocating by gripping, but like a, a clear contact. Yeah, in whatever form it takes. I mean, I, I can't say that I'm not challenged if I think of it geographically or lifestyle wise that I search for something I can count on, I search for. I also love the long-term relationship with place, for example. I search for that, but not with, hopefully, hopefully not with the promise, with the false promise that this means forever because, I don't know, anything can change any time, like how to, I don't think that I have it. I don't think that I'm all that, all that like clearly set and stable in this, in this awareness, but I am inspired by it to still participate in the things that are happening, to make choices, to put myself in certain situations, mm, but not with the presumption that they're always going to be in that form all the time. You know? Yeah, it makes me think also of 
this idea of order and how humans, you know, we try to order things. But again, from this perspective of human mastery, that, you know, we come in and we know how things should be and then mm. we create this order. But actually, there is no order because this order that we call order is just creating a suffocation mm. to life, to, to nature, processes of organic beingness i guess mm. and i you know i also heard it from someone um like this idea of there is no order actually but order comes or everything and everyone finds their place if they are healthy and what does it mean to be healthy mm. it's a big question but maybe you know being true to oneself and to somehow tuned in or attentive in and out right like this whole to this relational spaces to this personal ecologies uh, that we are and how they are how they strive to balance together and this is when you know things get in a more organic togetherness and i know for some people this organic can be problematic because they think of organic as normal as the norm and it's something that you do automatically but i would rather yeah think of it as you know it's very organic that now is autumn and that mm. the leaves are flying and the wind is strong you know and yeah how can i you know, go into this deep release of being in that space that is there absolutely and maybe it's it seems so obvious now, but it's also that thing that you said, like, now it's autumn and I have to deal with that. You have to dress in a certain way if you want to be outside, for example. This is like an undeniable reality that most people seem to have agreed on because they understand that the repercussion is, yeah, I don't dress warm enough and I get sick and then they have to deal with that. But still, we think, I mean, even in the North, like in, in the Nordic place where it feels like, whoa, if anywhere we should not be able to deny <laughs> the seasons, it's here when it's so kind of constant but drastic. But still, like I would go to school and there would be synthetic lighting and we would try to just still have this start at so-and-so time and end at so, you know, keep up the workday, simulate conditions all the time so that there can be continuity because we're so afraid of certain things not being possible. But when you work with the, with nature, it's just the fact. If you try and plant in winter, the plant won't grow. So you can't really <laughs> deny it. You can't really negotiate about that. You can negotiate all kinds of other things, but. Yeah, and this, and you know, speaking of health and organic, like how this demand to be productive all the time no matter what's the season just same schedule you know same rhythm same expectation that the human will do this and that because yeah. that's you know you are human you need to be a master of yourself you know go train yourself to get up even in winter it's dark <laughs> get up at 6 a.m <laughs> it's like yeah. be the master of yourself you know like it's, it's considered to be a virtue to be able to yeah to go against the body, like the soft animal of the body. Yeah. 
in tune with the seasons, you know, wanting to sleep longer, not wanting to be constantly productive. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. What a sad virtue. <laughs> a sad skill to practice maybe, all the time. Yeah, maybe this maybe this skill is something we could put to decay and to let go and like let it compost and join the this the forces of autumn Mm. to let it to let these ideas of continuous productivity fly away (laughs) with the wind yeah that sounds great For birds, understanding the passage of time is absolutely critical to ensure that they maximise the opportunity of having a successful breeding season. Birds really need to time their reproductive effort with when resources are at their most plentiful. For most birds, their understanding of time comes from the environment around them. In particular, the change in day length is one of the major drivers of bird behaviour. For many species that we see, they are what we call migrants. They actually winter in sub-Saharan Africa and they arrive in the United Kingdom from around March onwards. And for these birds, again, it's so absolutely critical that they perceive the passage of time through the changes in day length. In particular, in the late summer and the early autumn, as our days get shorter, that's a real cue to our summer migrants that it's time to start preparing for that really energetically demanding event of migration and flying all the way back 10,000 kilometres plus to their wintering grounds in sub-Saharan Africa. It's really pivotal for birds to structure their annual cycle to ensure they... We call this their circannual rhythm. How do they structure their annual cycle? And this is, as I say, largely dictated by photo period. Birds can sense these changes in light levels and day lengths through a series of fascinating and complicated biological phenomena that take place within their bodies. Here in Western Europe, we have distinct seasons. In the spring, we have an increase in day length, which the birds respond to. In other parts of the world, however, it's not quite so straightforward. Birds that live in the tropics, for example, experience the same photo period throughout the year there is no discernible change in day length or the light-dark levels. They have to structure their annual cycle and understand the passage of time through changes typically in rain and the quantity of rain that's taking place. So for these birds living in tropical climates, it's less about changes in photo period to help them understand how the year is progressing, but rather the wet season and the dry season. And for many species, they want to time their breeding efforts with the wet season because all the food becomes plentiful. The vegetation increases, the insects increase, and altogether this complex ecosystem then provides sufficient food for the birds. In other parts of the world, it's even more complicated for birds to understand the passage of time. Birds who breed in the poles, whether that be the Arctic or Antarctica, during the summer will have no 
dark periods at all. These birds are living in constant light. For these species, interestingly, they go into what we call a free-running cycle. They actually show no structure to their daily activity. They simply sleep when they're tired, they eat when they're hungry, and they take advantage of this constant daylight to maximise their foraging opportunities to ensure they can have a really successful reproductive effort. For many of these birds that breed in the Arctic, for example, they actually spend their winters down here with us in the United Kingdom. Our winters for them are actually a nice mild break from the weather they're used to where they spend their time further north. Again, for these species, their understanding of the passage of time comes from the onset of a dark period in the autumn when the Arctic starts to experience its first dark time. At this point, it's a cue to these birds to start preparing for what is a demanding migration. This happens typically around August and September. And at that point, here with us in the United Kingdom, our summer migrants start responding the same. The changes in photo period, the shortening of day length, tells them that they must start preparing their bodies for this really demanding act of migration. Migration for most birds is very tough. It involves crossing water for land birds that can't simply take a rest on the water. They would drown. They must keep flying. And to do that, they have to power themselves with lots of fat stores. When day length starts to get shorter, birds go into a state what we call hyperphagia. What that means is they just start to eat and eat and eat trying to get those fat stores packed into their body to fuel that really demanding migration. And it's the shortening of the days in the autumn which tells the birds to do this. And in September, the day length hits a critical time where it's a signal to the birds that it's time to leave our shores and head south. The sensory ecological capacity of birds is incredibly impressive. They sense the world around them in a very different way to we do as mammals. They have greater visual acuity, for example, or indeed many species do. The colour and definition they see is greater. Many birds can see into the UV, something that we as mammals cannot do. So the world that birds are looking at and perceiving is very different to what we see. This is something that's really important for birds that migrate. We've been fascinated with how birds migrate for centuries. Different species use different mechanisms and have different ways of migrating and finding their way to their wintering grounds. Some species, for example, like ibis and cranes and storks, they actually learn the precise migration route from migrating with their families, their parents. For small songbirds, they don't migrate with their parents typically. They have something within them we call an endogenous cycle that tells them that they should be moving south. It's thought that actually for small birds, it's the sky above them and the stars when they hatch from the egg as a tiny chick that actually helps them understand where they need to come back to. This is an amazing feat for a tiny bird. It hatches in May and just a few months later, it's flying on its own 10,000 kilometres south to its wintering grounds.
We know that birds use a variety of mechanisms to navigate and find their way home. For example, they can sense the Earth's magnetic field, something that we as humans are unable to do. It's thought that some birds can also hear infrasound, a level that typically only animals like elephants talk at. We know that smell plays a really important role for some bird species in navigating and finding their way. But there is still so much we don't know about how birds know where to fly. Often birds will choose a route that might not be the shortest route and seem almost counterintuitive to us. But often it's this route that provides stopover sites for them, the opportunity for resources, or for some species, it's the best route to fly when it comes to wind. So the aerodynamics of that route are more preferable than what we would perceive perhaps as a shorter route.
Thanks for tuning in to Woods in the Sound this month. If you would like to explore further with us the notions of ecological being, we invite you to come for a collective practice dojo, which is taking place online every month. As well as join us on the trails of Foresta Seasonal Academy, the learning experience dedicated to ecologies of human and more than human vibrancy and restoration of bonding. For more details and registration, you'll find the links in podcast notes, as well as all the credits for audio and video context markers of this podcast. Do send us your questions, answers, comments. We'd love to hear from you. And see you in the woods.